Well, I hope everybody enjoyed their holiday. I certainly enjoyed mine. It's good times to have family in and all that fun stuff. And it's been fun the last few weeks, stepping out of Mark and visiting some familiar and famous text in Scripture. Uh, but as of last week, I informed you that to, to balance it out, I would visit a really obscure Old Testament text, one that you probably have never heard preached before and may never hear preached again because it's a, it's a little lewd. Uh, it's one of those passages in the Bible people read and go, I can't believe that's in the Bible. What does it mean and how does it fit into the grand narrative? And, and I hope to show you that this morning. Anyhow, I'm going out of town after church on purpose. So any questions that you're going to have, uh, you can find Dale, who's not here. I guess you'll have to find him in the community during the week or just Herschel, so you can ask those guys. But by way of introduction, I would like to uh, read from the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's, if you have little ones, it's really a great resource for helping them understand the whole Bible. And uh, it's good for adults, too. It's helped me to have a different perspective on Scripture and to understand some of the harder parts. I think it's really helpful. Uh, and I've used it before when we were working through Judges last year, if you remember. So it might, some of it might sound a little familiar to you. This is what she writes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is that it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all of the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and came to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. And every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece of the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together so that suddenly you can see a beautiful picture Friends, every text of Scripture fits together into a mosaic that is our Bible. And my goal today is to show you how our text fits into the rest of Scripture and why it matters. We're going to take it a, a section at a time, as you see in your outline there. We're going to take a look at Er and Onan in the first 11 verses of chapter 38. We're in Genesis 38, if I didn't say that already. Er and Onan. Now we're going to take a look at Tamar in verses 12 through 23. We'll see what Judah does in verses 24 to 26, and then we'll finish up by talking about the twins that are born in verses 27 through 30. I think the main idea of Genesis 38 is that God accomplishes his will by preserving his seed or promise through two acts of faith. Tamar's operative trust, that's a trust that operates or has action to it, and Judah's repentance. Furthermore, God fulfills his promise through Jesus. Consequently, I will suggest that we too should operatively trust God, humbly and habitually repent of our sin against God, and submit to the will of God. I've tried to summarize the main idea for us in our one big thing. That's what the one BT is on your outline there. And that's just God accomplishes his will. If you walk away and the only thing you can remember from this message is, man, what was the main idea of that text? I don't understand. It's that God accomplishes his will. Before we get started, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, help us to approach you with a deep reverence. 
not with presumption and not with a, a servile fear, but with holy boldness. Father, you are beyond the grasp of our understanding, but you're not beyond that of our love. Help us to love you supremely. Fashion us into people who walk with the traces of Christ's love artistry upon us. May he work on us with his divine brush that is your word and spirit until he completes the image that he's drawing us into being. Lord Jesus, come to us. Divine Spirit, rest on us. Holy Father, look on us in mercy. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get started in asking the question how this text fits into the whole Bible, we need to ask how it fits into Genesis. And if we're really good Bible students, what we would first do is read the whole book of Genesis. I don't have quite that much time this morning, and so what we're going to do here is I did some of that homework for you, and I'm going to try and summarize what I think the two primary themes of Genesis are. Uh, As we think about it, though, I think it's helpful to think of Genesis like a river into which many tributaries flow, so all the small little rivers feed the big river, the main theme. All these stories are helping to inform the main theme. Maybe you can think of it like a French braid. I'm not quite sure how that works, but it's a bunch of different strains of hair that come to make one firm cord, or maybe a puzzle box top, if you like. But the idea is that all the pieces fit together to to create one major theme. They all work together to accomplish the author's purpose. And so let's look at some of these early parts of Genesis. If we consider the early portion of it in chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve disregard the word of God and act in disobedience rather than faith. Theologians call this the fall. And as a result of the fall, sin and evil enter the world and they fracture everything. Everything from that point on is broken. Man isn't in right relationship with God. He's not in right relationship with himself or with his fellow creatures. Sin ushers in death, evil suffering. It ushers in the total corruption of all things. Since sin became a reality because of Adam's disobedience, men and women have lived broken lives in a broken world and themselves been guilty of sin and evil. Yet in the same chapter that documents this fall in verse 15, God speaks a word of hope. He promises that the seed of the woman will overcome evil and death. And we see this promise kind of traced throughout Genesis. And the next big time we see it is when God promises Abraham that he will be made into a great nation and that through him, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And so Genesis is primarily concerned with developing these two promises together. They're the promise of a coming savior. They're kind of the same promise almost. It's the promise of a king and a kingdom. And that's what Genesis 38 is about. It's a story that focuses on the promise of God. Because you see, in Genesis 38, what we're going to discover is that the promise of God is in danger of being snuffed out. He said that he would save the world through the seed of the woman. And the line through which this Savior, the one that's to do the crushing of the head of the serpent, is supposed to come, is through the line of Judah. And Judah is in danger of not having an heir in this chapter. So keep that in mind as we begin to look at Er and Ernan. Let's read verse 1. It happened at the time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Aldamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. 
And she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son. And she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son. And she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. Verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn. And her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So, whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So to recap a little bit, Judah makes some poor choices. He goes down away from his family, away from the land, and is going out on his own. He's hanging out with foreign people in Canaanite lands. And he, this is all after selling his brother Joseph into slavery in chapter 37. I don't know if y'all know the story of Joseph or not, but uh, his brothers, they sell him out to the Egyptians into slavery. And it, it doesn't go very well at the front end, but it works out. So anyhow, he sells Joseph into slavery, and now he's going to hang out with the Canaanites. He then marries a Canaanite woman who gives birth to three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. He picks a wife for his firstborn, Er. She's named Tamar. Er is then killed for, and we read it just a second ago, being wicked. Now, all men that have ever lived are wicked, but Er is wicked enough that God kills him right then and there. I don't know what he did or how bad it was, but apparently he was wicked enough to just get put down right then and there. So he's dead. And as a result, Judah tells his other son, Onan, that's the next son, that he has to take part in what is the custom of leveret or brother marriage. That's what leveret marriage is. It's brother marriage. Onan is supposed to marry Tamar and father children on heir's behalf. Let me explain a little bit. Leveret or brother marriage is a custom wherein your brother marries your widow in order to preserve your family line. Any sons that the widow has by the brother of the dead is considered the dead brothers rather than the living brothers. You with me? So if, I'm a, if my older brother has a wife and he dies, I go ahead and I marry her and I father some children by her, hopefully. But those sons are considered his even though he's dead, not mine. This practice, which later becomes law, is actually a great protection for women at this time and in this culture because they were considered assets, they were considered weak, and so this actually protected them from abject poverty. It was a protection that is prescribed by God. And so Onan is supposed to protect Tamar. And that's, that's leveret marriage. And that's why Judah tells him to do it. But notice that Onan doesn't marry Tamar. He obeys, but he only, it's a half-hearted obedience, which I argue is no obedience. He just performs the duty. Well, kind of. Onan does something that is despicable. Instead of protecting his brother's widow, he takes advantage of her. Instead of marrying her and trying to give his dead brother heir an heir, or an heir, that's what I meant to say, a little tricky. Instead of doing that, he has sex with Tamar, and in verse 9, he wastes his semen or his seed, notice the word seed, on the ground. 
This is important to note because the promised seed that is to crush the head of the serpent is to come through the line of Judah, which has to pass through Er. Right? And Judah only has two sons left, Onan and Shelah, and no grandchildren. This is very bad. Onan tried not to get Tamar pregnant for a couple of reasons, I think. First is, he's not aware of verse 10, which says he's put to death, right? Right, if he knew he was going to be put to death for it, he probably wouldn't have done it. Secondly, he knew the kid wouldn't be his own. You see, Onan is desiring that his own children would become the one to inherit all that belongs to Judah. Therefore, he doesn't want to father children that won't be his. It's almost oxymoronic, but that's, that's what's in his heart, right? He doesn't want to give Tamar kids that would be considered heirs rather than his own. He wants to be the one that has children that inherit everything. So what he does is uh, he makes it look like he's being a good brother-in-law to everyone around. He, he's trying to provide an heir, it looks like, right? He's spending lots of time with Tamar. But instead, he's just satisfying his own sexual desire, Wasting his seed on the ground. He's not concerned with the well-being of Tamar. He's using her. Nor is he concerned about the promises of God. Onan is putting the seed of the woman that is to crush the head of the serpent in great peril. He's standing in the way of God's plan. Ignorantly so, but he's standing in the way. And so God kills him in verse 10, like we talked about. Thankfully, God gives us the opportunity to turn from our selfishness and have our sins forgiven in Christ. But I still think it's important for us to ask, how am I like Onan? How are you like Onan? There's a little Onan in us all. Do you try to make everybody think that you're being a good big brother, a good Christian, a good person, when in reality your heart is wicked? Are you using others? Are you abusing power that you may have over someone else? Are you manipulating situations for your own selfish gain? Are you so wrapped up in your family, your stuff, your life, yourself, that you can't see the plan of God? Are you so wrapped up in yourself that you stand in the way of God's plan? What are you really about? Glorifying yourself or bringing glory to God? For Onan, it was the former. There are Onan-like qualities in all of us that will lead to our eternal death, that separation from God and all that is good. If we do not turn away from them and towards Jesus. So Judah realizes his first two sons are dead. He figures there's some bad juju going on with this Tamar character. And he, uh, he just promises that she'll be able to marry Sheila. He says, hey, stay a widow. I'll give you my third son eventually when he comes of age. So go stay in your father's house. It's just an excuse not to marry his third son. And so the seed is in very, very great peril. It's in serious danger. The promise of God is in danger of being snuffed out. This means no king, no kingdom. We need to read Genesis 38 as if we don't know the ending. There's great narrative tension here. Can you, can you feel the weight of what's just happened? Everything could be lost. God's great rescuer may not come at all. The promises of God are about to be voided. What do you do in peril? In times of trouble? When it seems that God has lied? Or that he's absent? When things are falling apart and the brightness of the future is drastically dim? 
How do you respond to trouble? Let's see what Tamar does. Verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira, the Aldamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. She, so he gave them to her and went into her. And she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Aldamite to take back the pledge from the, widow, the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as our own, or we're going to be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. In these verses, we see Tamar take the initiative. She realizes that Judah's not going to give her his third son, which would result in the negation of her part in the blessing of the firstborn. So, much like the story of Jacob and Rebekah in chapter 27, she comes up with a plan to obtain that which the patriarch should have already rightfully given to her. The whole plot of this section revolves around Tamar's right to be the mother of Judah's heir. She was the wife of his firstborn. Thus, she had the right to mother the heir of Judah. So when she hears that Judah's headed up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she decides to act. You need to understand this culture is very different than ours. For us, we hear shearing of sheep and we don't think that that's much fun. But for here, it meant a party. All right. The sheep shearing was a huge festival. It was a spiritual Mardi Gras, if you will. So Judah and his crew, they're headed down to New Orleans for a good time on Fat Tuesday. They come across a pretty young thing that Judah just cannot resist. Turns out it's temple prostitute. Note the temple prostitute is mentioned here twice. Remember, these are Canaanites. And part of how Canaanites get favor with Canaanite fertility gods is they sleep with Canaanite temple prostitutes. And so what we have here is Judah seeking the favor of the Canaanite gods rather than the God of Israel by way of sleeping with a prostitute. It's ritual fornication. So he sleeps with Tamar, who had taken off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, feigning the appearance of a temple prostitute. And she conceives by him. She gets pregnant by him. She also obtains and holds on to his signet, his cord, and his staff, which at that time would serve kind of like your social security card. She goes, how do I know that you're going to send me this goat? Which, by the way, for a prostitute, that's a, that's a lot of money back then. Sending a goat from the flock, that's, that's big-time dollars. This isn't a cheap exchange. So she says, you give me your social security card so that I know you're going to fulfill your promise. 
These items would identify Judah as Judah. So he sends the goat. Can't, can't find Tamar anywhere. And he's lo- kind of lost his wallet and his social security card because the, uh, the, the, the search publicly to go, hey, I slept with a prostitute. I gave her my signet, my cord, and my staff. Now I can't find her. That would be really embarrassing. And that's why the text says, or they would be laughed at, right? And so he's just, ah, she can have that stuff. I'll have to get, get a new one, reclaim my identity, all that fun stuff. What we see in these verses is Tamar operatively trusts God as an act of faith. You see, she intends to carry on the line of Judah, and so she acts by faith and trusts God. She knew the God of Israel by way of her marriage into Judah's family, just like Ruth knew God by way of her entrance into Naomi's family. And thus, she acts out of faith. I say that she acts out of faith because she's declared righteous later on by Judah, and she's included in the genealogy of Jesus. Furthermore, she would have faced the death penalty had she been found out. Yet she acts. Moreover, she would have had to believe that through this singular encounter, she would conceive a child by Judah. Indeed, it came from her faith, which is counted to her as righteousness. Now, if you're like me, you might have a little trouble with this, and you're trying to figure out just exactly how what she does is righteous, right? She's pretty deceptive. I think we need to note that for the author, for Moses... He doesn't have this question. He very much considers Tamar righteous. He sets her up as this narrative's protagonist. Therefore, I think we also should view her as the protagonist. But the question is how? How is she righteous? I think there are a variety of approaches to this question in ethics books, and uh, I'm not going to visit them all here. I'll let you do some research on on your own. I'm simply going to offer you my own thoughts. It's right for Tamar to act by faith. And it is her faith that is called righteous, not necessarily the act itself. Additionally, we see the Lord use sinful acts to accomplish his will throughout all of Scripture. So the most recent example of this is with Joseph's sale into slavery. Remember, he comments on it in chapter 45, verse 4. Come near to me, please. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And again, in chapter 50, verse 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God accomplishes his will of preserving the seed. He preserves the king and the kingdom through the sinful actions of Joseph's brother. And he accomplishes his will of preserving the seed here through Tamar's act of faith, even though the act itself may be sinful. The righteousness of the act itself, as I said, I'll leave to the ethicist and to you to debate on the way home. But what we do know is she's called righteous. And I'm calling her act an act of faith because she's set up as the protagonist. I think the author sees her as righteous and so so too should we. She puts her life on the line to preserve the seed or the promise of God. Confronted with trouble, she operatively trusts God and she acts by faith. And so I ask you again, when confronted with peril or times of trouble, how do you respond? When someone takes your parking space on the way in, how do you respond? When you burn dinner in the oven. When you don't get that job you wanted. Or the grade you knew you deserved on a test. What about when your marriage is broken? Or how about when you can't pay the bills? What about when you experience the death of a loved one? 
How do you respond when confronted with times of trouble? Do you blame God? Do you get angry? Do you read a self-help novel or try to figure out how you can fix things? Or do you act by faith? Exhort you to operatively trust God as an act of faith. I think there's strong irony here too because we have a foreign woman, Canaanite woman, seemingly more concerned with the promises of God than Judah, an Israelite. Let's see how this Israelite Judah responds. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And she was being brought out and she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Please identify whose these are. This signet, this cord, and this staff. And Judah identified them and said, she's more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. Judah's told that the widowed daughter, his widowed daughter-in-law is pregnant. And he decides that it means she's been immoral. A little ironic there too, considering. And he demands that she be burned. I couldn't help, when I, when I read this, I think of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I don't know if y'all have seen that. Like, she's a witch, burn her. That's, that's the reaction I get here. So it's a little Monty Python of him. He's, he's really angry though, right? He's seeing red. He's thinking to himself, I've lost two sons because of this woman. And now, instead of waiting for my third son, she slept with another man. Let her be burned. We know he's really angry because burning isn't the punishment that's prescribed for this type of infidelity. The punishment that's given later on is stoning. And probably was the custom even at this point in time. And so Judah is wanting or calling for the most intense punishment that he can think of. Just as Tamar's being brought out to be burned. She sends him his social security card and says, I'm pregnant by this guy. The owner of these, the signet, this cord and the staff. In other words, she's saying, remember how you left your wallet with that woman? that you thought was a prostitute? Turns out it was me. The child that is in my womb is your own. It's a real like Jerry Springer-esque moment here. What is it, Maury on daytime TV now? It's the DNA test. The child is yours. Uh, And Judah at this point, I just don't know. When I was reading this first time, I'm going, I don't know what he's going to do. How's he going to respond to this? Because Judah's a pretty wicked dude, right? He sold his brother into slavery. He's no longer in the land of Israel, sleeping with cult prostitutes. I kind of expect him to say, you know what? She stole those items from me. She's a thief. She's been sleeping around. She's a thieving whore. Burner. And that's the type of thing I expect from him at this point. But instead, we're, we're given a bit of a curveball. Confronted with his sins, Judah repents. She is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her my son, Shelah. No one is beyond the grace and love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We know that Judah is repentant, not only from his statement here, but by his actions throughout the rest of the Joseph story, throughout the rest of Genesis. Judah is transformed into a man that no longer only cares about himself, but a man that cares for his family. 
Later on, we see him plead for his brother Benjamin with tears. We see him embrace Joseph in a hug of reconciliation. He's by his father's death, uh, by his father's side on his deathbed. We hear him receive the promise that the scepter will not depart the house of Judah. Judah humbly and habitually repents here. She is more righteous than I. Likewise, true disciples, true Christ followers will humbly and habitually repent as an act of faith. It's part of their lives. That's the Christian life is continually repenting, continually saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I need your forgiveness. What sin are you confronted with today? What do you need to repent of or turn away from? Judah had plenty to repent of, and so we're going to use him as a gauge a little bit here to discover some of our own sin. Judah leaves God's family. He walks away from his faith by mixing it with the culture around him. Are you guilty of mixing other religions and false gods with Christianity? Are your values being shaped by TV and movies and music and the Supreme Court? Or are they being shaped by God and his word? Do you need to repent of worshiping foreign gods? Have you walked away from God's family? When someone makes you mad or things aren't perfect or the way you would like them, do you just abandon your brothers and sisters in Christ? Let me tell you, friends, when you're not committed to the community and fellowship in a local church, you are setting yourself up for spiritual failure. And you sell the rest of your brothers and sisters into spiritual slavery as Judah sold Joseph. How? Because you're hoarding your own spiritual gifts. Your gifts that God has given to you are for building up his church. When you selfishly keep them to yourself, you're abdicating your responsibility to God's people and to God himself, just like Judah. Do you need to repent of apathy towards the body of Christ? Do you need to repent of neglecting God's family? Or perhaps you've been a poor example. It seems that Judah had wicked sons and that there's some truth to the old adage, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Both of his sons are put to death because of their wickedness. What sins are you teaching your children, your peers, your friends? What sins are you teaching your spouse? Are your loves in the right order? Are you valuing something above Jesus Christ? What really grips your heart? What do you ponder and treasure? What do you daydream about? What are you longing for and serving instead of Jesus? What do you need to repent of today? Brothers and sisters, whatever your sin, let us learn from Judah here. Let us act by faith and humbly and habitually repent. Look with me at the final verses of the narrative in verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. We see here two children born. And that God accomplishes his will by preserving his seed or his promise through Tamar's trust in Judah's repentance. 
The story, though, also fits into the whole of Scripture and points us to the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise in Christ. Matthew's genealogy actually will just draw out these names for you right then and there. Tamar, Perez, Zerah, Ruth, Obed, David, all the way down to Jesus himself. Because you see, at the end of the day, all of the stories of Scripture tell one story. And God is the hero of this story. He uses the faith of the weak to accomplish his will. Tamar is a Canaanite woman, the very least, the very weakest of the people in the society. Yet it's through her act of faith, her operative trust in God, that he preserves his promise. Continually in Scripture, we see God use the weak. Here, it's Tamar. In Joshua, it's the prostitute Rahab. Later on, it's a Moabite widow named Ruth. God uses them because they recognize their weakness. And they completely depend on him. They recognize without him they cannot. Therefore, they trust him and they act by faith. I think they give us an example, too. It's not always the religious people in society that get what God is doing or that he uses. I think oftentimes in terms of, we we think of society in terms of the irreligious and the religious. But Christ, they're both kind of in the same boat. The irreligious and the religious alike are both headed for hell. The irreligious says, I'm on the path of self-discovery. I've got this. I'm going to do things my way. And the religious person says, I'm going to follow your rules, God, if you give me this. It's a quid pro quo situation. The religious person does all the things and expects everything to be given to them. They're much like the elder brother and the prodigal sons, right? At the end, the, the, the son that had inherited already had gone off and wasted it. He comes back and the father welcomes him with open arms. Come into the feast. But the elder brother outside says, I've kept all your rules and you've never given me a feast. And the father says, all that I have is yours. Come, come into the feast. And what Jesus is doing there, he's telling these parables. It's the third of three parables. In the first one, uh, somebody looks, something is lost and the person goes and they look for that which is lost. In the second one, a coin is lost and they go and look which, for that which is lost. The first one's a sheep, I didn't mention that. And they find it, and there's rejoicing at the end. But in the third one, Jesus substitutes a Pharisee in there, the religious people. And he says, the elder brother should have gone and sought the younger. He didn't. But the the younger brother came home anyhow. At the end of that, that parable, you have the older brother standing outside with his arms crossed and his lips pursed. I deserve... I followed the rules, so I deserve to be loved. I deserve to be blessed. I deserve to have all of that. Friends, that's, that's not what the gospel says. The person that comes to God and says, I have, therefore you need to, is just as lost as the person that is wayward and doesn't obey a single command of Scripture. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the weak. It's the ones that come to God with empty hands and say, I have nothing to offer you. I need your grace. I plead the blood of Christ. Those are the ones that are saved. God uses the weak, and he's the hero of this story. He accomplishes his will also through the repentance of Judah. Instead of killing Judah, God allows him the opportunity to repent. Throughout Scripture, God loves and uses those who humbly and habitually repent. Here it's Judah. Later it's David, a shepherd boy, a murderer, and a rapist. Eventually it's Paul, a killer of Christians. God uses those that are humble. He uses those that will repent and follow him. 
He uses those that act by faith. God is the hero of this story. He preserves the seed and he keeps his promise. The seed of the woman comes. He's a young hero from a far off country. Seeking to win back his lost treasure. He's the brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything. To rescue the ones that he loves. He's no ordinary man. He's our only hope. He's come and in perfect operative trust, walked in perfect submission to the Father as an act of faith. Jesus comes as the center of the story. Like Adam, he would be tempted in a garden to rebel against the Father's will. But instead he prayed, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. He fell to the ground in anguish, yet he did not relent. He continued to submit and obey the word of God. And he drank the cup of God's wrath that belonged for us, to us. And he drank it to the last drop. He walks with God as Adam should have, as we should have. He succeeds where we fail. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the manifestation and the explanation of the Almighty. He is the Word made flesh. He is God the Son, the God-man. He was despised and rejected. He was esteemed not. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Indeed, he made himself nothing and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But men thought him weak, perhaps as weak as a Canaanite woman. They couldn't see the plan of God unfolding. They thought him an illegitimate son of a carpenter with delusions of grandeur. Men killed him, and it was the will of the father to crush him. The hero was dead. The prince who left everything to rescue the ones he loves, to rescue you and me, it seemed, had failed. For three days, men thought him weak. In three days, men thought him powerless. For three days, his body laid lifeless. And for three days, they believed they had killed a blasphemer. And for three days, his disciples were scattered. And for three days, his voice was silent. And after three days, he rose from the grave. And the blood he spilt still speaks peace to those that trust in his person and work. His resurrection declares, I am who I am. And I am the king that was to come. I am the promise. And I have inaugurated my kingdom. Moreover, I will bring creation and Christmas to completion. I will bring my beloved into the city of God and they will be his people and they will live in the thick and eternal fog of his glory. I am making all things sad come untrue. I want relationship with you. Will you follow me? Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is the hero that has won his treasure. He is our prince that has rescued us. He is the peace that fits the puzzle together. And indeed, every story whispers his name, Jesus. He is the one that teaches us how to truly act by faith. It's because of him we can trust and repent. 
and submit perfectly to the Father. Friends, there are two choices before us this morning. We can act by faith, submit to and trust Jesus by repenting and following him. Or you can reject Jesus. You can reject the promises of God and be justly crushed for your sin. All will one day bow the knee to this great king and his kingdom. And I implore you that that bending of the knee would be a loving submission that leads to an eternal bliss. Life together with God. I pray that you would have a foretaste of it even now. Friends, submit to Jesus. Act by faith. In conclusion, Genesis 38 shows us how God sovereignly preserves his promise of a king and a kingdom through Tamar's operative faith and Judah's humble and habitual repentance. Moreover, Jesus guarantees God's promise through his substitutionary life and death by living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died and raising to life in victory over death. Jesus liberally offers extravagant grace, the promise of life to those who will humbly come and say, I have nothing to offer. I plead the blood of Christ. He offers extravagant grace to those who by faith are poor in spirit, say, I need you. I'll follow you. I trust you. Will you trust him? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.